Welcome to Music History Monday for July 10th, 2023. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is When You Dance with the Devil. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. We mark the birth on July 10th, 1895, 128 years ago today, of the German composer and educator Karl Heinrich Maria Orff. Born in Munich, he died in that city on March 29, 1982, at the age of 86. The Good News Orff lived a long and productive life. He was a composer of considerable talent, whose works draw on influences as diverse as ancient Greek tragedy and medieval chant, Baroque theater, and Bavarian peasant life. His so-called scenic cantata, Carmina Burana, of 1936, remains an audience favorite today. Along with the German educator Gunild Kietmann, Orff developed a musical education method in the 1920s called the Orff Schulwerk, or the Orff Approach. It's a methodology that integrates music, movement, speech, and drama in a manner based on what children do instinctively, and that is play. Today, the Orff approach is employed around the world and is one of the four major developmental music educational methodologies. The other three are the Kodai method, created by the Hungarian composer and educator Zoltán Kodai, 1882-1967, the Suzuki method, created by the Japanese violinist and educator Shinichi Suzuki, 1898 to 1998, and Dalcroze Eurythmics, created by the Swiss composer and educator Emile Jacques Dalcroze, 1865 to 1950. Orff's success as a composer and educator garnered him great honors in his native Germany. From 1950 to 1960, he was the chair of music composition at the Hochschule für Musik in Munich, one of the most prestigious conservatories in the world. In 1956, he was given membership in the Order pour le Merite, an honor awarded by the German government in recognition of extraordinary personal achievement. During World War I, the military version of the Le Merite, was referred to as the Blauer Max, the Blue Max. In 1959, Orff received an honorary doctorate from the University of Tübingen. In 1972, he received another from the University of Munich. That same year, he was awarded the Order of Merit of the Federal Republic of Germany, and in 1974, he received the Guardini Prize from the Catholic Academy of Bavaria. It all sounds lovely. 
a composer and educator honored in his lifetime and esteemed after his death. Except, except for the bad news. From 1933 to 1945, Orff lived, worked, and, for all of his post-war statements to the contrary, thrived in Nazi Germany. For reasons we will observe, the exact nature of Orff's life in Hitler's Third Reich remains a mystery and will almost certainly never be known for sure. One thing we do know, however, is that by remaining in Germany after Hitler came to power in 1933, Karl Orff's life and career became a cautionary tale for any artist who would dance with the devil. There are three schools of thought regarding Orff's relationship with the Nazis. The first claims that he was, at best, tolerated. The second maintains that Orff not only collaborated, but was himself a tried-and-true National Socialist who composed music in the service of Nazi ideology. The third school of thought is complicated and lies somewhere between the first and second. I'll let you guess which school we are about to attend. Yes, the middle ground, somewhere between collaboration and not. The Cover-Up After World War II, to a person, Orff's German friends and colleagues claimed that his work under the Nazi regime represented a creative artist doing his best to hang on, that his political and moral integrity were of the highest order, and that Orff himself was a victim. Parenthetically, we would respectfully observe that Orff's presumed victimhood was on a somewhat different level than that of the 60 million people who perished during the war. We were victims too, was a common claim by many people who, in fact, had initially supported the Third Reich. For example, as a nation, Post-war Austria claimed to have been the first victim of Nazi aggression due to the Anschluss, the reunification of Austria with Germany in March of 1938. Yet, in a referendum conducted on April 10, 1938, the Austrian population voted 4,453,912 meaning 99.73% of the electorate, to 11,929.27% in favor of reunification. Some degree of election rigging notwithstanding, these are not numbers that reflect victimhood. Again, after the war, Orff's German friends and colleagues claimed that he was defiantly anti-Nazi. And yet, in the 78 years since World War II ended, no evidence of such defiance has yet to emerge. Rather, what has been called a conspiracy of selective memory loss 
is in evidence in much of the German language ORF literature, as if the Nazi years had hardly happened at all. For example, in 1995, a number of books, exhibitions, and catalogs appeared in Germany to mark the 100th anniversary of Orff's birth. The Nazi years were mentioned hardly at all. In 1996, a comprehensive exposition sponsored by the Karl Orff Center in Munich, quote, accidentally omitted mention, unquote, of what was one of Orff's most controversial works, his incidental music for Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream, composed in 1939. Yes, Orff had been hired to write appropriately Aryan music to replace the vilified Jewish composer Felix Mendelssohn's famous incidental music. According to Alex Ross, writing in the New York Times on August 20th, 1995, quote, the completely unscrupulous Orff accepted a commission to write a replacement score for Mendelssohn's verboten Midsummer Night's Dream, one of the shabbiest acts in musical history, unquote. So, was Karl Orff technically a Nazi? No, he was not. He never joined the party. He was, in truth, put off by much of what the Nazi party stood for. Reliable sources tell us that he found the crudity of Nazi doctrine laughable, but those sources also tell us that he did his laughing in private. In fact, Karl Orff was an opportunist, someone whose moral outrage applied only to those things that affected him directly. When it came to Nazi policy and politics, he learned, as did so many of his fellow German citizens, to look the other way, to pretend that if something didn't affect him personally, it was none of his business. Orff also had the misfortune, though at the time he undoubtedly considered it to be his great good luck, of sharing with the Nazi regime many of its musical beliefs. Orff abhorred jazz and atonality, both of which were considered degenerate art by the Nazi authorities. Orff was fascinated by Volksmusik, meaning German folk music, the music that Nazi dogma claimed resonated with the heart and soul, the Blut und Boden, the blood and soil of the German nation. On top of this, writes Professor Michael Cater in his book, Composers of the Nazi Era, Oxford University Press, 2000, quote, Orff's musical pedagogical system had become the bedrock of instruction courses everywhere in Nazi Germany, from conservatories and music schools to educational institutions of the Hitler Youth, unquote. And so Karl Orff's own artistic and educational proclivities became increasingly indivisible from those of National Socialism. By 1944, he had reached the apogee of his career. The phenomenal success of Carmina Burana had made him the wealthiest and most popular composer in Nazi Germany. 
He became one of the very few German artists to be exempted from any sort of war service. Propaganda minister Josef Goebbels called on him personally. In December of 1944, Orff dedicated a brief work to, quote, Adolf Hitler, the patron of German art, unquote. Five months later, on May 8, 1945, Germany surrendered unconditionally to the Allies and the war in Europe was over. Post-war denazification. Denazification was an Allied initiative to rid German and Austrian society, culture, press, economy, judiciary, and politics of Nazi ideology following the Second World War. A German-slash-Nazi celebrity like Karl Orff was in the crosshairs of the Allied investigators and the denazification process, and he knew it. And so Karl Orff, like so many of his friends and colleagues, required two things, a conspiracy of silence and lots and lots of alibis, meaning lies. Orff did in fact lie his way through his denazification hearings, portraying himself as a victim of Nazi persecution who only just managed to survive the war. That he succeeded in so portraying himself speaks highly of his ability to manipulate his interrogators, no small thing, given that those interrogators were professional military psychiatrists and psychologists, and attests as well to the fact that he could expect those fellow Germans who knew him to lie for him, even as he lied for them. Karl Orff was interrogated, or screened, on March 1946 by an American military psychiatrist named Dr. Bertram Schaffner, 1912 to 2010. Dr. Schaffner, who went on to be renowned as a psychiatrist and widely known as a collector of Indian art, was nobody's fool. Nevertheless, his psychiatric evaluation of Orff was decidedly mild, perhaps, oh, perhaps too mild. Dr. Schaffner wrote that Orff was, quote, one, a highly gifted creative individual who scored high on intelligence tests. Orff is diplomatic, ingratiating, and ingenious, retiring and unobtrusive, accustomed to independence and solitude since childhood. He has steadfastly pursued his career as an unattached composer. He has little personal need of belonging to a group, public honor, or recognition, and prefers to work alone rather than in organizations. He is emotionally well-adjusted, purposeful, and egocentric. 2. Orff scored highest in his group on the political attitudes test. Psychiatric studies of his environment and development are consistent with an anti-Nazi attitude. On psychological grounds, Nazism was distasteful to him, 
Likewise, on psychological grounds, he remained a passive anti-Nazi and tried to avoid official and personal contact both with the Nazi movement and with the war." Unquote. Given what we think we know about Karl Orff today, it would appear that he managed to pull the proverbial wool over Dr. Bertram Schaffner's eyes. Where have all the photos gone? I'd offer up what I consider a most interesting observation. In seeking out photographs online for this post, I made a most interesting discovery. Try as I might, I couldn't find a single photo on the internet of Karl Orff with anyone identifiable as a Nazi. Now, this doesn't mean that such photographs don't exist, though I find it most mysterious that no such pictures would seem to be accessible. By comparison, there is no such shortage of photos available of other famous musicians who were associated with the Nazis. For example, the conductor Wilhelm Furtwängler, 1886-1954, who waged his own private war against the Nazis, which was the subject of Music History Monday on November 30, 2020, is pictured with Nazi bigwigs all over the place. The composer Richard Strauss, 1864 to 1949, whose four last songs was featured in Dr. Bob Prescribes on January 2, 2019, and whose own relationship with the Nazis continues to raise eyebrows, is also so pictured. But Karl Orff's photographic history between 1933 and 1945 the years the Nazis were in power, would appear to be limited today to the very occasional solo portrait, like the solo portrait from 1940 featured in the blog version of this post. Given Orff's fame and popularity in Nazi Germany, particularly after the premiere of Carmina Burana in 1936, this absence of a photographic record is most troubling. It is yet another aspect of Karl Orff's past that would seem to have been scrubbed clean. Keeping his cards very close to his vest. Orff was born into a high-end military family in the southern German state of Bavaria 128 years ago today. His mother Paula, born Kessler, 1872-1960, was a trained pianist. His father Heinrich Orff, 1869-1949, was an officer in the Imperial German Army. Orff's grandfathers were both major generals in the German Army. Despite being an army brat, Orff recalled that, quote, in my father's house, there was certainly more music-making than drilling." Unquote. To the disappointment of his father, but with oodles of encouragement from his pianist mother, the young Karl had virtually no interest in the military, but lots of interest in 
and talent for music. He studied at the Munich Academy of Music from 1912 to 1914. Drafted into the German army during World War I, Orff was nearly killed in a trench cave-in in 1917. Having recovered from his physical injuries, amnesia, aphasia, and paralysis on his left side, Orff returned to Munich there to complete his studies and to begin and to build his career. Karl Orff wasn't the only wounded young veteran undoubtedly suffering from PTSD who spent his post-war years in Munich building his career. Adolf Hitler, 1889-1945, returned to Munich after the war as well, where in September 1919 he joined the nascent, extreme right-wing German Workers' Party. On February 24, 1920, the name of the party was changed to the National Socialist German Workers' Party, the NSDAP, now universally known as the Nazi Party. Hitler was designated as Party Member 555, though he was, in fact, Member Number 55. The party began counting their membership at 500 to make it appear much larger than it really was. There in Munich, Karl Orff had what amounted to a front row seat for the rise of what soon enough became Adolf Hitler's Nazi party, for which Munich was its headquarters and spiritual home. Contrary to statements made after the war, Orff knew exactly who Hitler and the Nazis were from their very beginning. Living with the Lies Like so many Germans of his generation, Orff lived with his lies for the rest of his life. Even as the post-war German economic miracle came to pass, Orff's generation maintained their self-protective silence. They heaped awards and degrees on each other, as evidenced by Orff's post-war honors. But it speaks volumes that of all Orff's post-war honors listed at the beginning of this post, not a single one came from outside of Germany. So, finally, to the question we must all be asking ourselves, is it okay for us to listen to and enjoy Karl Orff's Carmina Burana? After the war, Orff went so far as to claim that the work had been outright banned by the Nazis between 1936 and 1940, quote, and had been declared undesirable for the entire Third Reich, unquote. Orff's claim that Carmina Burana was blacklisted is patently false, a clumsy, and unsuccessful attempt to establish some anti-Nazi credentials after the war ended. In fact, by 1937, within a year of its premiere in 1936, Carmina Burana was being performed across Germany to rapturous public and critical acclaim. Karl Orff became the musical darling of propaganda minister Josef Goebbels, which guaranteed Orff's critical success for the duration of the Reich. Carmina Burana 
is the only piece of concert music composed in Nazi Germany to remain in the international repertoire today. And while audiences still love it, much of the critical and academic community has come to see it in a negative light. For example, according to the distinguished German musicologist Albrecht Reithmuller, born after the war in 1947, quote, I have absolutely no problem with calling Carmina Burana Nazi music, unquote writes the equally distinguished American musicologist Richard Taruskin, 1945-2022, quote, Aesthetics or not, Carmina Burana is fascist music, unquote. According to the French-born American literary critic George Steiner, 1929-2020, quote, Carmina Burana is fascist trash and can be shown to be so in musical terms." Unquote. In reference to Carmina Burana, the British-Australian musicologist Richard Toop, 1945-2017, suggests that it is, quote, almost impossible to further debase an overblown crude piece of music from a Nazi sympathizer with a taste for smutty lyrics." Unquote. So again, the question that we, as members of the listening audience, must ask ourselves is given Karl Orff's historical baggage, should we continue to celebrate Carmina Burana? That is a question and a decision that must be left to each one of us to consider. Thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.